Welcome to the Future Accords on KTUH University of Hawaii Radio for the cultural and educational enrichment of the students of Hawaii as well as the global community. On this show, we will interview thought leaders to hear about their past, present, and hopes for the future. Join us as we dive into topics around the five P's of sustainable development, people, planet, prosperity, peace, and partnerships. I'm your host, Ari Eisenstadt, and let's explore the future together. Aloha, and welcome to the Future Accords. I'm your host, Ari Eisenstadt, and today we are joined by a very special guest, Professor Deborah Halbert here as the Associate Vice President for Academic Programs and Policy for the University of Hawaii System, as well as my first ever professor in the future of political systems. Professor, thank you so much for being here today. Of course. Thanks for inviting me. This is really uh, so exciting for me because your class has been really the inspiration for this show, The Future Accords. Uh, so I'm so excited to talk more with you personally and hearing about your experiences, your past, present, and visions for the future in these different scenarios. And hopefully we'll come up with the optimal and the best case scenario for, for these great ideas that you're not only working on, but continuing to research and write about. Uh, you're a professor here in political science. You've written about intellectual property and trends in higher education. You're working at the University of Hawaii system level. You are also a, a current student at, in law school uh, as well as a, an instructor for the search and rescue uh, team. So thank you so much for being here with us. Uh, this is such an honor. I would love to, to dive into what your past experiences have been like. How did you get first into political science and looking at all these bigger issues that you're working on? Uh, I would have to say that I got into political science as an undergraduate when I joined the debate team at Western Washington University. Debate is a fantastic way of accessing politics and policy, and at the time I didn't really know what I wanted to major in, but the more I was exposed to issues of policy and social justice and inequality, I realized that political science and political theory to one degree was the track that I wanted to take. And so I entered the political science field and haven't really left. And how did you end up here in Hawaii? So I was thinking about graduate school and I had no idea where I wanted to go and I'd been talking with my mentors at Western and one of the schools that they had mentioned was the University of Hawaii at Manoa and this is of course in the mid 90s so there's not an internet or actually the early 90s so there's not a internet to look on and so the University of Hawaii sent me a brochure they put together about the faculty here and of course there's a huge group of folks that are doing really interesting political theory and a lot of cutting-edge things but they also had the Hawaii Research Center for Future Studies and this was the first time I I had been exposed to the idea of the future as a way of studying. And so I thought that was really exciting. And I decided to come out to Hawaii and join the program here. Fantastic. What was the first the first thing that you started to research when you were looking at future studies? So I was part of the Hawaii Research Center for Future Studies from probably the end of my first year in the program throughout my time here. And it really had a huge influence on what I wrote my dissertation on, which ended up being an issue of intellectual property. So I looked at copyright in the information age as my dissertation topic, which was back in 92 through 96. So still things were evolving and beginning to be put in place. And so it was a way of bringing together what was happening politically in the United States, which was the passage of all these new 
new laws that were shaping what the information age would become, but also then thinking through what those would mean for the future, which was how future studies intersected with my interest in copyright. And then I could never have anticipated that I'd continue to talk about this subject for the next 20 years, but guess what? I have. And so for someone who has never heard of future studies, how would you, how do you distinguish this field of study from other areas of political science? That's a good question. And I think that in many ways, future studies transcends the study of political science or politics and could be studied outside of politics. So you can frame any kind of subject matter in terms of futures. And so there's a lot of ways of thinking and tools that I think future studies brings to the study of anything. I think we were lucky in Hawaii because of the work of Professor Jim Dater, who brought future studies to the political science department and created those kinds of connections. But one of the ways that I like to see that intersection um, explored is through the ways we think about governance and futures of policy, and then um, the ways in which we can use scenarios which is really something that HRCFS, the Hawaii Research Center for Future Studies, does pretty well, which is to think about and spin out multiple different scenarios of the future, which is different than doing strategic planning or emerging, emerging issues analysis, even though, of course, those are also ways that you could look to the future. Fantastic. And these scenarios, like we've, we've spoken about on this show, are continued growth in this linear progression, uh, discipline, a constriction, uh, a recession, type of uh, scenario, a collapse where everything falls apart, and then a transformation where things completely change. Um, and do you have a particular viewpoint as to, are we in a current scenario from the past, maybe when you first started in Hawaii? Is this in looking about where we are right now? Is this fitting in one of those scenarios for you? Well, I think one of the things I appreciate about those archetypal futures is that when Jim Dater was asking folks what they thought about the future, he found that they tended to fall into one of those four categories. And so it may come as no surprise to you that I tend to see myself more in the collapse scenario <laughs> than I do in the transformation scenario. But I remain hopeful that we could maybe have some transformation in the future. Are we collapsing at the moment or is this more of a discipline towards a collapse? Is there is there a way that you distinguish the eras uh, just since you've been been researching the, the topic? Um, well, I, I'm not sure I can speak so broadly to it. I think I, that's, that's, I'm not sure how to answer that question. I think that for me, looking at the different kinds of environmental trends, technological trends, there's a lot of elements of collapse present. What that means for the future, I don't know. I don't know if it would be an evolution to another kind of scenario or not. The way I like to look at scenarios at, uh, is as thought experiments from the future that help us shape how we ought to behave now to hopefully avoid those worst case scenarios and move towards a preferred future for ourselves. Absolutely. I think that's really, really interesting and excited to talk more about that uh, as we start to look into the future. Uh, one other thing that I wanted to ask about is mm -hmm. in your publications around the idea of public spaces and you're an avid rock climber. What are your thoughts on uh, the current trends that you've been seeing around this idea of public public space? I've always liked the idea of, of the public. Um, the public domain, of course, has an intersection with copyright and intellectual property because if something is not quote unquote owned within a copyright sphere, it would be in what we call the public domain. But there's also, of course, a variety of different public spaces that are either owned by the government or you could argue are just commonly held by individuals. And so there are interesting ways of thinking about people beyond just their individuality within a society to what they are collectively as a public. Uh, and so 
the ways in which we define public space, space, I think is really important for how we understand ourselves, not just as citizens, but as communities. And so I'm a big advocate for public space and public access to public space. And, um, and of course, as a rock climber, there's a lot of rock climbing that happens in on public lands. And so it's nice to be able to have that, that kind of access for my own self-interested reasons too. Absolutely. Is there a best case of a public space, uh, whether in transformative festivals or national parks or shopping malls? Uh, you know, is there is there a, a uh, an area that you think is like this is what we should aim for as a as a civic community around? Um, I, I, I'm well, certainly not the shopping mall, which I don't think of as a public space. Mm -hmm. I think of it as a private space. And really, if you sort of juxtapose that to what a public space would be, you can kind of see some of the dimensional differences. So a shopping mall, which is primarily commercial, where free expression tends to be limited to a, to a large degree, uh, where this, the notion of citizenship is really limited to transactional kinds of relations where you're purchasing something. And so there's no real place in a mall to explore the kinds of civic connections that you should be able to find, one would hope, elsewhere. Um, so I think community is really a foundational component of what a public space would have. You and I both, I think, have appreciated Burning Man as an experiment in radical community structure. And I think they do some really fascinating things in terms of urban design to help shape community, but also shaping the value structure of how you would interact with others to provide a different way of thinking through what it means to be part of a community and maybe decentering the individual a little bit and recentering the larger community structure. So, so that's some of the things that I think about when you ask me that question. Absolutely. For those that don't know, Burning Man is this one of the largest art festivals in the world around these 10 principles of what it means to create this decentralized festival. Um, but one of the most striking differences from anything I've ever experienced was that, first of all, there there's no money exchange for at least a week. Uh, and then there are no garbage cans either. So it's all it's all this radical self-reliance um, and and this idea of leaving no trace. Uh, do you see any trends of that happening in the, the normal world here in Hawaii or globally? I think that there are small movements towards trying to figure out how we build that in. And so this would maybe be a way of building on the work I've done with Oahu Search and Rescue. Uh, but more so with the work that's being done in the state around emergency management plans. So I think everyone in Hawaii was confronted by the fragility of what we call civilization as the latest set of hurricanes was barreling towards us in the fall and wondering how we were going to make it through that particular experience if, say, our houses were blown over or we lost electricity for two weeks. And so I do start to see, and this is maybe slowly evolving as we try to come to grips with the fact that climate change is creating even more massive hurricanes than ever before, that as communities we need to start building in some of these kinds of self-help structures um, at the ground level. So it's not enough to say the state will come in and help us get through this, but we really need to figure out how we can create community endeavors. And so in Hawaii, there's a lot of local community efforts to do emergency management preparation for uh, hopefully we'll never get hit, but for the next large storm that might come our way. Wow. Well, it couldn't happen sooner enough to prepare for something yeah. like that. Moving to the present, with your current position and new position with the University of Hawaii system, mm -hmm. what, what have been your main focuses with that and what are your views as, as Hawaii and the University of Hawaii really goes through all of these new transformations? Uh, that's a really interesting question. So 
I, I don't know that I had planned in my life to enter administration of higher education, and yet I find myself here. And some of the, the ways that it's made me have to think about the institution have been really positive for me, and it's been a huge learning experience. Um, and one thing I do feel like I, I personally need to do more of, but everyone that's associated with the University of Hawaii or really any institution needs to do is resist the, the sort of anti-intellectual rhetoric that seems to be surrounding us within the United States generally. Um, certainly in Hawaii, we have support from the legislature for the University of Hawaii, but also a lot of criticism uh, of us. But one of the things that I've, I've sought to argue, and I think I read a, my colleague Colin Moore and I wrote an op-ed about this a few years ago, is that the University of Hawaii, and this gets back to public space, has had an influence on the, on the way we conceive of the ideas relevant to the state, right? And, and, and certainly we're a big institution in a small state, so we've had that kind of impact. But there's a lot happening at the university across the disciplines that goes out into the community and helps shape the way that things are happening. Um, and some of that is also reciprocal. So we take from the community the ideas of what we need, and then we kind of build on those to build something new and hopefully progressive. So for example, we have a series of different folks that are working on farm to table issues in Hawaii. And, and there's been this, I think, really important co-relational process between the university and the ideas that people can learn at the university and going out and applying those ideas um, on different farm, on different farms throughout the um, state, but then also then having that come back to inform curriculum at the campus. And so you see that kind of relationship, I think, being an important one that, to be honest, if I had only stayed in the political science department, I might not have been as privileged to see, but now I can kind of see a little more, bit more broadly across all the different disciplines. Fantastic. And, and Hawaii is also now the first United Nations local 2030 leader mm -hmm. focused on some of these environmental sustainability issues. Mm -hmm. uh, and University of Hawaii is one of the main partners for that. So mm -hmm. that's great to see that being integrated into the curriculum and mm -hmm. into the community. Uh, I think conversely, though, w with this anti-intellectual uh, sentiment that you talked about, there's on the other end of the spectrum, the highly in intellectual uh, and privatized intellectual property that, that you're also researching uh, with your work on, on intellectual property and neuropolitics. Um, mm -hmm. How do you balance that out when ideas and, um, and, and these new designs and innovations are being so widely protected? Is there a way to, to reconcile the two? Reconcile the difference between uh, private protection and the exchange of ideas, yes. that kind of thing. Um, well, I think that, again, from the position of higher ed, we've always been fairly grounded in the idea of sharing ideas, right? That, that fundamental to teaching is sharing knowledge. And that also becomes a basis for the kinds of research that gets done in higher education. And, and definitely there are challenges now to that model. And there's a lot, again, kind of coming in from the outside, but also being generated from the ways people conceive of their own intellectual property. I put air quotes around that, not that anyone can see that. Um, is you know there's some some different kinds of threats to that general sharing of ideas uh, when it comes to the neuropolitics of uh, so so backing up a little neuropolitics is an idea that was sort of conceptualized by a grad student at um, in the political science department Jake Dunnigan who works in the 
futurist field and was used to describe sort of the evolution of the way in which our study of the mind is integrating with uh, a way of, of making essentialist claims about human behavior so so that we become basically what our brains are. And it goes beyond that. There's a lot you can read about it. It's a really exciting field. And then parallel with that, of course, is the evolution of artificial intelligences and the ways in which we need to think about how mind works within artificial intelligence. A lot of that research is being done within higher ed. A lot of that research is being done behind very, very secret closed doors outside of higher ed. And so to get to your question, I think about where intellectual property intersects with it, I think we are now entering a moment where we have to start wondering how ownership of ideas that could then become part of future consciousnesses in the artificial intelligence sense of it, what that's going to mean. So it's another point in, I think, the conversation we need to have about this future of AI, the future of how we understand human brains, at the point where you're starting to have the possibility of direct brain-to-brain -brain communication without using your voices, then the question becomes who is owning the things that you talk about? And, and so on one side, you could say this is just kind of evidence that we are social creatures and, and where do you draw that line between private property and public kinds of access? But at another, these are going to spark new debates about ownership and who owns what, and we want the public to be present in those debates. And just last week, uh, scientists were able to go directly from uh, someone's thoughts to English speech through a computer. So do you see a world where all of our thoughts are recorded and then automatically filed into a patent so that we have protection over all our original thoughts and that conversely we'd be fined if we think something that's already been thought before? Is that a possibility? And is that something that we may want to be able to protect our, our ideas. Well, so copyright would be, I believe, the relevant law to think about. A patents would cover the technology that you would use to take those thoughts from your head to the computer, and it's most likely that whoever created that technology will own the patents. But once you fix something in a tangible form, that's the language of copyright law, then it becomes copyrighted. So the question would really be, do you own that tangible fixation of what you thought? Or does the person who ran the experiment or runs the computer or whatever it is own the copyright to what you thought? Uh, and so some of it might be a debate over who owns the fixed in a tangible form version of what you think. And so before doing any kind of research in that, or doing any kind of experiment in that area, you might want to think through what the ownership implications are. Now, of course, even saying that means that we've placed a new kind of property into the discourse when in reality you just want everyone to share and not worry about it. But, but that would be one thing to think about. That's fascinating. So it's more of the, the issue around the platform uh, where those ideas are even shared in the first place. Mm -hmm. And thinking about radio and how the government controls the different frequencies and the airwaves mm -hmm. and how different that is from starting a website and hosting information there and how it starts to become very privatized very quickly. And mm -hmm. regulation starts to get into more of a gray area, it seems. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of different regulatory um, nuances to think about. And so, so think about Facebook or 
Facebook a social networking platform of anyone. If you read the end user licensing agreement, which nobody does, but if you did, uh, one of the things that it talks about is that you've granted them an unexclusive license, generally speaking. Sometimes it might be different and you would want to know this, to all of the intellectual property or copyrighted works that you put on their network. And the reason is because this is a law, of course, that was created for the 19th century and, well, really the 18th century. And so they have to think of a way that allows for infinite sharing of something that by definition you have copyrighted and own and can't be shared without your permission. And so this language of unexclusive license and perpetuity, all of that kind of language is there to figure out a way around copyright um, so that you can share stuff without worrying about it. So at one level you could argue maybe this just all happens under the radar in the, in the licensing agreement so we don't worry about it. It's just in those cases where it then rises to the surface and becomes a problem that for example, when they sell your data, which you thought you owned, but you don't, um, that it becomes an issue. What is, in, in your mind, the optimal scenario for social justice uh, around intellectual property? What are, what are the best ways that we can create policy to really incentivize new and sustainable ideas and disseminating them, but also having equitable ownership, I guess, over those rights? Mm -hmm. Well, I think that intellectual property as a way of thinking about ownership itself needs to be problematized. So, I mean, we have patents, we have copyrights, we have trademarks, we have trade secrets, we have a lot of different kinds of IP, and they serve different purposes. And I think one of the most important things that needs to happen is, and there's a lot, been a lot of work done in this area already, to demonstrate that people aren't necessarily motivated by ownership to create. They're not motivated by ownership to create an, in inventions, and they're not necessarily motivated by ownership to create creative works like music or art, etc. So, so it's also important to note that the vast majority, especially in copyrights, of copyrighted work have been concentrated and owned by large multinational corporations, either publishing industries, the recording industry, the movie industry, you name it, right? These, these are... This is a political economy of property ownership. It's not about individual creative work. So if I'm not throwing the whole system out, if I want to imagine what this looks like in the future, what I would want is some kind of system that can deconstruct this sort of corporate concentrated ownership model and actually can provide some kind of protection for artists and creators who otherwise are not the ones that are using the law to protect themselves. Um, and so, so this is just, again, staying within the realm of the law itself, not saying let's just get rid of it, but instead saying how can we make this actually protect the people it's supposed to. But realistically, if somebody violates a copyright you have, do you have the money to hire a lawyer to go fight that? Right. Not really, mm -hmm. which is why I'm in law school. Thinking about it, it that way and some of these other main issues that put you in that collapse scenario camp, but can you take some of those, some of those strategies and apply them to things like environmental damage? Uh, strategies for? For a, a, around social justice of, of distribution of ownership of intellectual property. Is there, are there ways of 
of reimagining our environmental policy to, to work and be able to get out of that collapse scenario and really transform that, do you think? Probably. There's a, a IP scholar in Australia, Matthew Rimmer, who is writing on the intersection of copyright and climate change and looking at how the uh, work of patents keeps technologies from being utilized fully to help us solve some of the environmental crises that we're facing. And so I think one thing would be to figure out how we get IP out of the way so that we can start to utilize ideas to help solve these problems, assuming, of course, that these problems are solvable through technology, which they may or may not be. But but again, how do we how do we tap into the amazing creativity humans bring to the world without monopolizing it and shutting it down and keeping it from being shared, which tends to be a lot of what happens when you let patents rule. Absolutely. And do you see do you see the future of uh, higher education in the University of Hawaii moving in these directions? And what other what other new exciting visions for the future do you have for higher education? I think the University of Hawaii has in its most recent well. University of Hawaii at Manoa in its most recent strategic plan has identified sustainability affecting climate change, uh, really focusing on uh, the UH as a Hawaiian place of learning as key values that need to be part of what we do. And so, and I, I don't think we're alone. I think higher education as a whole is seeing a role to be played in innovating towards a better future. And that's, that is positive, I think. Um, there are, of course, as I've said before, some negative trends out there in terms of how higher education is funded and making it more difficult for students to afford to come to college. And that's really been part of a 50-year effort to, as uh, Eugene Thacker, I think his name is, says the great risk shift, right? Taking again away from a public interest and shifting risks onto the individual. And that's happened for individuals across across the society in terms of all kinds of social safety nets, but also in terms of higher education funding. So really coming to grips with how we fund education and making it more affordable and easy to access for everyone would be a key issue I think we all need to address in the future. Do you see any trends around, around global conflict um, that that on one hand we we're we're seeing a decrease in in wars, but it also seems like there's no end in sight to our current conflicts. Is there? Do you see a future around around this idea of security versus freedom and privacy? Uh, and are we going to have more of a cohesive global community uh, in the future, or do you see it becoming more fragmented and different internets splitting out and and more walls being built? I guess. It's hmm. a good question and. Um... I think, I think there's a lot of answers, and, and at, at one level, your question made me realize, again, the importance of scenario building for a future, because you could, you could envision multiple different futures where one is radically fragmented and balkanized, and it does seem, in many ways, given what's happening in Europe with Brexit, and to a certain degree in the United States, with the sort of dissolution of our... Uh, willingness to be in any international economic trade agreements that are multilateral, uh, that you're really seeing that sort of dissolution of a global governance system, which prior to this you would have thought we were moving inexorably towards. And so you could certainly spin out a scenario where that becomes a future. Uh, again, the rise of populism mixed with fascism across the world is deeply disturbing. You see those uh, Part, parts of that in the United States, but also, I think, across a lot of Europe right now and Latin America to some degree. And so that's something worth watching and being wary of. Um, I think, 
again, from the IP side, as it relates to global conflict, there's some really disturbing rhetoric around the theft of IP as a national security issue now. Uh, just recently, the United States indicted one of the head corporate leaders of Huawei um, and did so on theft of trade secrets, which again, may easily be true. I'm not discounting that this isn't true, but what it's framed as is really that we have um, the state of China, not just this company, but China itself, stealing our intellectual property and that that becomes and is of concern as a national security threat. And so I'm a little wary of that kind of language. I think that it has some serious ramifications that are worth watching. And it does also seem to be positioning us, positioning us not just in terms of trade, which we already have begun a trade war with, but also intellectual property tensions with China. It positions us to make some pretty drastic decisions going forward. Is there a recommendation that you have in closing, really thinking about what the transformative best case scenario for intellectual property and de-escalating those tensions and specifically maybe with China is something that we could that we could do to help heal that relationship and and move forward in a progressive way? Well, again, I think that what we need is more thinking about the future across the board, especially in getting towards what we would imagine as preferred futures. So futures thinking generally, I think, is always a good thing. And the more we can get people to think about what these possible futures are, I think the better. I think most people are so busy in their day-to-day -day lives that they don't really have time to think about it. Certainly not even personally, but definitely not geopolitically. So, so just spinning out scenarios and thinking about what the future could be and then trying to figure out how we can move towards those would be one um, thing I, I find important. In terms of the US-China relations specifically, this, this really is a, it's hard to know what any one individual could do, but it, it's important to recognize that the United States used to be one of the biggest intellectual property thieves, pirates, if you will, mm -hmm. in the world um, as we were developing, uh, and granted that was quite a long time ago, but as we were developing, we took a lot from other people to help us do that, um, primarily Europe. So it isn't out of the realm of what developing countries do to use intellectual properties in ways to help innovate out of their um, own past. But having said that, I think that China's a, in a different situation which we, and there's much more going on now than certainly there was when we were stealing technology from England in the 19th century or books from England. But um, I'm trying to think of how to, how to put it. China also has gotten very serious about protecting intellectual property and innovating itself. Uh, and certainly there's some recent announcements out of China about genetic design that everyone is concerned about because of its ethical implications, but that doesn't come out of a country that isn't already doing innovative and original work, right? So, so some of this, again, is a, is, a, is a political framing of China in certain ways that may not actually reflect what's happening there. And I don't know much more, but this isn't a good answer to your question. It's a really long-winded, meandering answer to say, I don't know how we solve that problem because we'd have to 
really start thinking of China differently than we do. Well, I, th- I think that's a, such a great, uh, great answer and, and such a great way of, of reframing these questions and really going back in again to the importance of these educational processes of really looking at these different scenarios uh, and hopefully optimizing for them. In, in closing, other than the Manoa Center for Future Studies, are there any resources, any personal publications uh, that listeners can get, either get in touch with you or your work that you'd recommend? I think you just Google me and you'll find stuff on the internet. (laughs) And most of it's out there for free. And if not, you can email me and I'll give it to you. (laughs) Fantastic. Well, Professor, thank you so much for speaking with us today. It is such an honor and we're, we're really lucky to have you. Thanks again. Thank you. Aloha, everyone.